we're all fighting for the same workforce and everyone's having the same exact struggle. If you can't compete for the best anymore, it's just going to decrease the value of our human capital. I don't even recall a time where we didn't have scarcity of talent. And what I can't understand is why people don't need to go back to work. Hi, I'm Jennifer Reingold with World 50. This is part two of our mini-series, The Scarcity Economy. In part one of this series, I talked to our members about how they're responding to the increasing impacts of shortages. It is apparent that the common denominator in every industry is labor. Some 71% of respondents said that increased turnover has affected their business, indicating that it may be the biggest legacy of the crisis. Mike Harris, Senior Vice President of Sales and Branch Operations at truck supplier Fleet Pride, says that the turnover is higher than he has ever seen it before. Are there other decisions, approaches, things that go beyond supply chain that companies like yours have to do differently, maybe forever, or at least for the foreseeable future? No, I think it's much bigger. In addition to that, two other elements kind of come to mind, Jennifer, I would say. One is technology in our business. And another is people. And there's a lot of things that go into our employee engagement, which directly relates to labor shortages, wage inflation, how we're managing those things to mitigate the shortage in the workforce that we experience, like a lot of other industries. Certainly in the distribution roles in our distribution centers, our, some of our frontline workers in the warehouses in our stores around the country, that's a similar population to all of the other industrial distribution businesses or large retailers with big distribution supply chains, we're all fighting for the same workforce and everyone's having the same exact struggle. It's hard to find people. When you do find them, you feel real wage inflation. When you do lose an employee, when you backfill that employee, you backfill that employee at a higher wage than the one that left. And so those are all compounding plus the COVID labor impact on top of that, that's a real challenge separately from supply chain. And so I think the employee engagement efforts have been significant as well, significant focus for us. What are those different things we look at and how we can better engage employees for retention and to attract talent in the labor market that we're in? Is there anything worth sharing that is kind of innovative or you feel like on on the employee side of things that is helping? I feel like everybody is like, okay, well, we're getting this wage pressure and then we're realizing we need to make people happier. But how? Yeah. So for us, it's coming a number of ways. Some reactionary, some proactive. Looking at our benefits. Okay. We've made changes in our benefits package in terms of how does your 401k package look? When do benefits take effect? It's becoming commonplace now. We've moved to day one eligibility, no longer a wait period of 60 or 90 days. Interesting. Um, When did you start doing that? Within the last 90 days. Okay. So from an employee engagement perspective, it's looking at the benefits package. It's looking at, we've had to do several in the last, call it six months, market wage adjustments in distribution, in the stores. And so when you compile all of these things up, There's real inflation in what I described. The backfilling of the role is at a higher rate than when it left. Attracting new talent is higher than what it traditionally would be. The difficulty in finding them has a financial impact as well. And then I would say on the benefits side, as a company, 
considering consuming the annual traditional increase in benefits to the business and how much of that normally gets passed on to the employee base, whether it's an 80-20 model or whatever that may be, we will not pass that along this year. We're going to add that to the list. We're going to eat the whole increase. And so when we think about all those benefit scenarios, how that plays into the labor strategy. And are these primarily, un, is this unskilled labor that you're talking about? Skilled labor? Like what's the category? Mostly unskilled, but there's certainly an element of skill, but I would weight it greater towards unskilled. Where you're seeing the, the crunch is on the unskilled yeah, side. Because those are jobs that are in such high demand and they're really agnostic between, you know, it's a one distribution center versus an next distribution center. So our employees as a, as an anecdote, when they drive to work every day, they're in an industrial park with multiple big distribution centers to get to our distribution center. On the way to our distribution center, they will pass four to five signs out on the road that say signing bonus of $3,000, minimum wow. wage of $20 an hour. And you're talking unskilled workforce that's at currently at 15 16 Wow. And so that's real. And that's now reflecting in our business as we manage it going forward. So how much has your turnover gone up in this? Or can you put any numbers around this? I would say turnover is higher than we've ever seen it in the unskilled work positions. Probably increased 20, 30% over traditional volumes, over traditional attrition. Compensation is top of mind for everyone, but that's not all. Once the pay is competitive, employees are asking for many other things, from 401k benefits to flexibility in their scheduling to relocation. Some organizations are not facing record turnover numbers. Even when Merck experienced setbacks, such as when its COVID-19 vaccine proved relatively ineffective, people did not give up. It's an example of an organization that so far has escaped the worst part of the Great Resignation, says Carl Sagerstrom, the company's head of talent management. Our turnover is about 8%. Wow. It's a percentage point and a bit up from the historical norms, but it's, nobody could argue this is, on an average basis, a major great resignation that we see in our company. We could be staying on a 6 to 8% turnover and still failing because we're not getting the best scientists in or the best engineers or the best health economists. If you can't compete for the best anymore, it's just going to decrease the value of our human capital. So I'm, I'm actually more worried about the quality of the few as opposed to our ability to fill eight to 10,000 roles a year around the world, if you see what I mean. And that's really where this increased war for talent is, is playing in. I do believe people who come to Merck typically have two things in common. There's a level of self realization of growth. So if, if we do well from a career and learning and development standpoint, that's the reason to stay. Is that applicable to everyone? Or are you thinking more in terms of management? We, we're a global company with a diverse workforce. Across the board, we have a view that everyone needs to grow. That growth looks different overall, but that's kind of our core philosophy. The other piece is our purpose helps us. It's a company of people who want to know that what they do contributes to saving and improving lives in the long term. With that said, in pockets, I see increased turnover. As you know, we're living through a, a wave of biotech innovation. And some of our best people we're not competing with smaller companies for, right? Or when we compete for data scientists, we compete with Amazon. I didn't used to do that. I used to compete with the, the Pfizer's and AstraZeneca. So it's, it's a new world. 
you know, I, I find that more companies move into hybrid work models. So I, I used to have my territory where I could hunt. Now I can hunt anywhere, but right. anyone can hunt for my talent. That's <laughs> it, right. it swings both ways. So, so you don't own New Jersey any longer and New Jersey exactly. is irrelevant. Yeah, exactly. So it means that we need to be better and really good at what we do because we can never sit back. I think you've actually hit upon something that's come out of the survey too, which is that it isn't really a great resignation. It's more of a great realignment. So let me dig in a little bit more on that, right? So this notion of purpose, honestly, I could ask any company and they will come up with some very lofty purpose. At this point, everyone kind of has, right? Everyone's gotten religion on purpose. Do you think that those types of things will be relevant, you know, if and if we ever go back to the office in some level? I do, because meanwhile, we've gone to a place of hybrid work models. There's no going back from that. An element of hybrid will always be here. It's more intentional and much more common. And so we had to really learn to, to work that media. So I do think being intentional about why and when do you need to meet face-to-face and what's the purpose of chopping up on social capital and build a team versus how do you do the actual work? You can do that virtually and, right. and, and learn to build those two different muscles. It puts a whole new set of requirements on people managers. It sure does. And that's a very interesting question too, right? Which is when you think about who or you need to be hiring, has yeah. that changed or, or, or perhaps the yeah. skill sets themselves? Yeah. Is there anything that, that you're doing now or that, that's getting incorporated into a good Merck employee that maybe didn't used to be? A common question we get asked is, do you have a hybrid work policy? Before we had that established and able to communicate it, we actually lost talent in the application process because they wanted flexibility. I meet very few people who want to be remote all the time. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I meet very few talent who want to come in to the office five days a week throughout the year. And that's just the market condition. But that's table stakes at this point. Exactly. Yeah. What all of this means is that companies are going to have to get creative. Business leaders must think of ways to build stronger cultures, reward valued employees that go beyond cash, and possibly prepare for lower profits while doing so. Investing in training and in upskilling is a way forward here. Livia Freudel, Senior Vice President and Head of Human Resources at Varian, agrees. You know, I was just reflecting and I thought, like, did we have the same discussion 10 years ago, too? I don't even recall a time where we didn't have scarcity of talent. I mean, of course, there were groups where it was easier to recruit for and others where it was harder. And again, it was not the problem that we didn't have applications. Yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of my work time in China, a lot of my work time in the Middle East. Yeah, so we had huge numbers of applications, but not the right ones. Mm. And this was always the case. Now, when I reflect on where we are now, I think we see a decrease in applications. I thought about, you know, how do we set up recruiting in a completely different way that we ensure that we just standardize as much as possible all the profiles where we don't have an issue filling them. Yeah, So the profile is crystal clear. The candidate profile is crystal clear. We get applications. We just automize this thing from the start until the end. So there's more or less no human interaction until the hiring manager has an interview. But also there, you know, we don't even have HR involved, you know, because even the salary package is predefined. It just automatically runs through. And we add all the resources into ensuring we put them where, you know, talent is really scarce and talent is not proactive, but we have to find the talent. We have to proactively reach out to them. We are much more career coaches 
than recruiters. That's interesting. Yeah, so we approach the talent from a perspective of, oh, you are an amazing talent. Where are you in your career? What do you want? You know, this is what we can offer you. But it's much more on the one side selling what we have to offer. And on the other side, being a true career coach, true, outstanding, amazing talent that might in that situation turn around and say, maybe not today, but they come back tomorrow and say, hey, I had this amazing experience with this company. I come back to you and I talk positively about you. So I want to break this down because you just said so many interesting things. This approach, are you using this for all of your recruiting or a specific subset? So we will be using that. Yes, where we have just finalized the conceptual phase some months ago. And we are thinking about three categories of talent when we look at recruiting. So we have the standard ones. Everything is clear. Profile is clear. Candidate is available. And it's just running through. It's like 60% of all the hires that we do would fall into this category. And is that any particular level or is that anyone in any level? Yeah, could potentially, I mean, normally not top executive talent, yeah, but could potentially be on every level. Okay. And then you have two additional categories. One is the category where talent is really scarce. So it's about us proactively approaching. It's about us selling ourselves. It's about us making sure that we attract this talent to engage in a conversation. And then we have a third category, which is highly complex profiles, where the hiring manager might know what problem they want to solve, but they're not clear What's the exact profile that I need for that? Because maybe this role did not even exist in the past. And we need a very highly skilled recruiter working with this hiring manager to figure out, you know, what exactly does the person need to bring in and then maybe interview a person or with that skill set or with that skill set and just figure out it's more process. Mm-hmm. It's highly time consuming for the recruiter who supports the hiring manager. So I need to put a lot of capacity there. A lot of us initially presumed that the Great Resignation happened because of government stimulus. But most of that is long gone now, and yet turnover remains at record levels. Greg Creed, former CEO of Yum! Brands, says it's confusing. You know, one of the things that we keep hearing, though, is that maybe this notion of there being a Great Resignation is really not the right way to think about it. That it's as opposed to a resignation, it's really a transition. And that... You know, the Walmarts and the Targets and so forth have been very vocal about saying we're actually not having problems staffing our people. I mean, they're obviously paying more, right? So so that's part of it. But it isn't the case that no one can find labor. It is the case that some industries and some people and some companies are not finding it. What tends to happen in labor is you get tiny little increases and you get this step change, right? And what we're getting, what we're getting now is this step change. Then what will happen is the step change will flatten out. Well, I don't know what the number is, 15, 50, 17, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's, if in fast food, they were getting paid eight, they're now getting paid 12. That's a massive step change. But I don't see 12 in the next six months going to 16 and 16 going to 20 because the economic models just won't support it. But you've now got this new $4, which is obviously added to you know, the cost of the business. The trouble is even at these new numbers, it's not attracting labor back into the workforce, which is, again, not what economics taught us, right? You know, if I just pay more, I'll get you. Uh, Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, I think people are even questioning, you know, do I want to do that sort of work? And if you think about it, if you go back 50 or 60 years when fast food first started, it was never meant to be a full-time job, but it was meant to be a part-time job largely for young people, first job in the workforce. But unfortunately, it turned into, for a lot of people, their primary job or one of two jobs. 
What's amazing is these millions of jobs that are available. And what I can't understand, because there's no more stimulus, is why people don't need to go back to work. I mean, I read the other day that 46% of Americans have less than $10,000 in a retirement account. Right. I mean, this idea that they're all just sitting on, you know, gazillions of dollars and happy cannot be true. But and yet they're not working. I know. And this is the thing I think all of us, all of us on boards are bamboozled about, which is, okay, there was the government stimulus. So people were like, I can stay home and get $600 or while you go to work. But now that those stimulus checks are going away and inflation is making things more expensive, I mean, even, even you know, gas, you know, all the things that matter to most consumers, the value of the stock market is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. There's no value that's being created for regular people in the stock no, market. The price of gas has more impact on sales in fast food than any other issue. If you put 20 gallons of gas in your car, and let's assume it's a dollar more expensive than it was six months ago, that's $20. And, you know, that's essentially what it would cost you to go out and have a fast food meal. So we we demonstrated the greatest correlation was gas prices to QSR demand. When I was running Yamal, running Taco Bell, people say, oh, you know, the stock market's up or the stock market's down. I'm like, my customer doesn't give a rat's about the stock market. They care about the price of gas. While the great resignation has become a common phrase in our everyday life, I found that some companies see this as something else an opportunity to rethink their entire approach to the employee. So maybe this isn't a great resignation, but more of a great realignment. In part three of our mini-series, we will pick up this conversation with Greg Creed, and we'll hear about the potential ramifications of the scarcity economy. From supplier relations to inflation, there is a lot to consider. <laughs> 